passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I hope you had a good Christmas, and I hope you had a, a good New Year. And, you know, as time goes on, it gets more difficult to even figure what Christmas is about when you look at our culture, because it seems to be about a Santa and a guy in a red suit, and of course, you have to buy lots of stuff. And we know, of course, that Christmas is about Jesus. It's about celebrating the birth of our Savior, the one who created the world, took on flesh to come into the world to save us. That is the reason for the holiday, and we're pretty much excited about that. But the reason we know about all this is because of our Bibles. Because the Bibles, our Bibles tell us the truth. Our Bibles tell us the word of truth. We are in an age where it is very difficult to find the truth. Isn't that true? Look at the news. Does anybody actually think they get the truth from the news nowadays? Look at your internet. Is Google giving you an honest result whenever you search for something? Nope. Look at social media. Even that is being filtered. It's very difficult to know the truth and to find the truth. But we have our Bible, which tells us the truth. We have Jesus Christ, who is the truth. What does it say in John 14, verse 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the and the truth, yeah, and the life. John 17, verse 17, God's word is the truth. So we have Jesus, who is the living word, who is the truth, and we have the Bible that is the written word, which is the truth. And by the way, this is why I love my job. This is why Jordan loves his job as well, because we're not like uh, sports commentators. They just get to give an opinion of what we saw happen on the field. We get to actually teach the truth. This is what every single person needs. They need the truth of God's Word. Now, even though our Bible is thousands of years old, I can tell you with great confidence that the English Bible you hold in your hands that we study on a Sunday morning accurately represents what God spoke thousands of years before. You wonder, well, how can I say that? How do I know this Bible accurately represents the truth? Well, that's because I understand the science of textual criticism. I understand the history of manuscript transmission. And you're going, well, what are those things? Well, here's how it works. When you go to seminary, they don't begin by teaching you how to preach God's Word. They spend a lot of time teaching you why you can actually trust God's Word. Why this book is, without a doubt, the Word of God. Because you know how it works. The fruitcakes and the, the nut jobs out there, if they're going to attack Christianity, what do they go after? This book. Oh, you can't trust it. Nobody knows what the original Bible actually said. It's been copied for years. It's full of errors. It's full of mistakes. Why would you believe this book? And if they're right, we shouldn't believe this book if it is just filled with errors and mistakes. It doesn't accurately represent the truth of God's Word and what God actually said and what God actually spoke. But I can tell you, because I understand the, 
the science of textual criticism, and I understand the history of manuscript transmission, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that this book that we study, the one that I'm holding in my hands, is the most trustworthy book in the world. Now, this leads us into the Gospel of Mark that we're going to be studying this morning. As I said, we finished the Gospel of Mark officially before Christmas, but if you remember, uh, Mark comes along and it has some extra verses at the end of it, verses 9 through 20 of the 16th chapter. Maybe if you have your Bibles, feel free to open to those verses and you'll see what I'm talking about, because these verses appear to, very, to question the accuracy of our Bibles. Now, I don't, by the way, this is usually going to be up on the screen, but it won't, doesn't work here to be on the screen. So if you're using the Bible app, what I'm about ready to tell you about and the graphics we'll go through is found in your Bible app. Now, in my ESV, <clears throat> it says this right before verses 9 through 20. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. Well, wait a minute, if we can trust our Bible, then why are these verses even there if the earliest manuscripts don't include them? And then the mystery gets deeper. If you go to the King James or a really old translation of the Bible, you won't find that disclaimer in there. Verses 9 through 20 just flow right in with the text. And you're going to say, Kurt, will you be to explain something to me? You just told me that this is the most trustworthy book in the world, but my modern Bible says, here's verses that can't be trusted, and the old Bibles don't even tell us these verses shouldn't be trusted. What is going on here? Sounds like a problem. Well, instead of these extra verses being a big problem, I'm going to show you why these extra verses and the disclaimer in it should actually serve to strengthen your faith not weaken your faith in our Bibles. Usually when I preach, I preach from the standpoint of what do these verses mean for us today? Today I'm preaching from a different angle. I'm going to preach from the angle of where did these verses come from? And how do we know that we can trust them? In particular, we're going to flip it the other way. These last verses, verses 9 through 20, where did they come from and why do we know we shouldn't trust them? And we're going to look at this from two different angles. First, we're going to look at external evidence, why these verses don't belong. And then we'll look at some internal evidence as to why these verses do, don't belong. So if you have your outlines, please follow along with me. I'm a big outline guy, if you know me. I've had a lot of cool details to give you today. First, the external evidence of text criticism proves Mark's final verses do not belong. All translations of our modern Bibles are based off of old um, manuscripts that are thousands of years old. Many of those manuscripts still exist today. They are kept in libraries around the world. And there's a lot of these old copies of the Bible from the most ancient of days. And what scientists do is they, they read them and they compare them to see that we can actually trust them. It means, you know, hey, they all sort of say the, the same thing. What we find is the Holy Spirit, He is ultimately, as we know, the author of God's Word. He is the one who inspired the prophets and the apostles to say exactly what God wanted spoken but the Holy Spirit is also the preserver of God's Word. He is the one who has seen fit to preserve from ancient times 
copies of God's Word that were written exactly like in the dates when the Bible was written. So we know what the old Bible actually said. That way we can know with great accuracy that our English translations are faithful and true. Now, when we talk about this idea of uh, manuscript transmission and Bible copying, the watershed date we have to look at is the 1500s. Because the 1500s is when the printing press came out. So after that point, it was easy to make duplicate copies of the Bible. You just press, you know, pull the lever. <laughs> Every copy is the same. But before that, it was different. Before that, copies of the Bible had to be made by hand. And you know how difficult it is to copy something by hand that is accurate and identical to the original. That's why most people think that there's, our Bible has been filled with errors as it was copied and duplicated by hand. But there's a lot more to the story than that. Let me begin by telling you about the Old Testament. How was the Old Testament copied? How was it duplicated? The first point in your outline this, under this heading is, the Old Testament is accurate because it was carefully copied by scribes. Books in our Old Testament range anywhere from 3,900 years old to, to 2,400 years old. And when the Old Testament books were written, and as they got old, obviously they duplicated them. Scribes copied them by hand. And these weren't just any scribes. These were Jewish scribes. The Jews took the duplication of the Old Testament Scriptures extremely seriously. They did it extremely carefully. I'll give you an idea of how they ensured the integrity of the copy to the original. For instance, they numbered every letter of the alphabet. Like an A had a number one, a B had a number two, a C had a number three. And then they took and they added up what is the numerical value of each line. And they made sure the numerical value of the original and the copy on each line matched one another. You think that's crazy? They counted the number of times each letter of the alphabet appeared in each Bible book. Like how many times does the letter A appear in the book of Genesis? They knew. And they went back to make sure that the copy and the original had the same numbers of each letters in them. So they were duplicates. They knew the exact middle letter of each Bible book, and they made sure the original and the copy had the exact same middle letter. Nothing was allowed to be um, written from memory. Spaces between each letter was measured by the thickness of a uniform thread. If an error was made in copying, that book was either buried or burned. One scribe was legendary for his attention to the details of copying. What he would do is he would write one letter on his copy. And then he would go and he would take a bath. And then he'd come back and he'd write another letter. And then go take a bath. And he continued doing this the whole way through duplicating the entire Old Testament. You say, well, this guy must have really had bad body odor if he had to take a bath between each letter. No, it was to the point of driving home to his mind that what I'm doing is I have to be pure because this is the pure Word of God. I want to make a pure copy of the Word of God. That's the kind of attention to detail that went into the Old Testament scribes or the scribes copying the Old Testament Scriptures. 
a man named Robert Dick Wilson. He's uh, somebody who studies ancient civilizations. He studied the Babylonian, the Egyptian, the Moabite, and the Assyrian civilizations, and their documents from the ancient of days. And he says it's interesting because when you look at the modern Hebrew Bible, whenever it, the Bible that you hold in your hands talks about who was the kings in the Babylonian or Moabite or Assyrian civilizations and what was the years when they reigned, it matches 100% accurately with the um, writings and the histories from those ancient civilizations from that time. That means that the Old Testament that you have in your Bible, even though it's been copied for thousands of years, it still is accurate and still is trustworthy. This brings us briefly into something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember those? What is the big deal about the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were a copy of the Old Testament that was a thousand years earlier than what we possessed in our hands at the time when they were discovered. Here's the big deal. What they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls regarding the Old Testament compared to what they had in their hands a thousand years later was essentially identical. Nothing had changed. The scribes were very careful when they copied our Old Testament to make sure it said exactly what God wrote. Let's move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The New Testament is accurate because of the numerous manuscripts that remain. Now, we're going to spend more time in the New Testament because obviously the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is part of the New Testament. So that's why we're going to spend more time there. While the Old Testament, the thing that we want to focus on is the Old Testament scribes who copied things carefully and accurately. In the New Testament, what is interesting is the number of manuscripts that we still have that remain. There are 25,000 full or partial manuscripts of our New Testament that still exist that are thousands, you know, hundreds to thousands of years old. Now, some of you may say, I mean, there's just 25,000 really old copies of the New Testament? <laughs> No, I don't know how many were destroyed. I don't know how many were discarded. I'm trying to tell you there are 25,000 copies of the New Testament letters that still remain that are like 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 years old. Now, this is part of witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what's interesting the Holy Spirit preserved these manuscripts. There shouldn't be this many manuscripts. We shouldn't have this many manuscripts that we could look back upon. The neat part about this is if you want to say, well, what did the Bible actually say? How do we know that errors weren't copied into our Bible? Well, if you look and you have a thousand manuscripts and one of them has something they copied differently at the end, but 999 don't, which one has the error? Sort of obvious. And since we have this huge number of manuscripts, we can do those things. Next thing to tell you is the New Testament is accurate because of the age of these manuscripts. I mentioned to you there's 25,000 ancient and full and partial copies of the New Testament that exist. 
Of those 25,000, 5,656 are what we would consider old. Very, very old. From the 2nd and 3rd century old. They date from the year like 100 to 300 A.D. Folks, the New Testament wasn't even written until the years 60 to 90 A.D. And we have 5,600 copies full or partial from 100 to 300 A.D. Let me tell you just the uh, story of three of these ancient manuscripts that are very old. These are faint. These are famous manuscripts before the year 325 A.D. The first one I want to tell you about is was called the Rylands Papyrus. Incidentally, when these things were discovered, they usually are named after the person who discovered them. Uh, that was a guy named Rylands. They are also numbered and described. This is also known as P52. P stands for papyrus, and that's uh, when the people would take reeds and they would dry them and flatten them. That was their version of paper. It was number 52. And by the way, if you are using the Bible app, there's a graphic I have in there for you so you can see what a piece of that papyrus looks like. That's just a small piece. But the Rylands papyrus actually contains a large portion of the Gospel of John. It was written in the year 130 A.D. The Gospel of John wasn't even written until the year 90 A.D. It's a copy of John's Gospel only 40 years after it was written. That's pretty early. You want to know what John said? That's about as good as it gets. You may not be familiar with this name. There's a man named Bruce Metzger. He's sort of the the big brain in theology when it comes to manuscripts and the Greek New Testament. And he says, if this, just this one papyrus had been found 100 years earlier, it would have completely devastated the idea of higher textual criticism from the Germans, which is what led to liberalism in our mainline denominations. Because with higher textual criticism would say that, um, that the Bible is actually a very late in history uh, compilation, that it's not connected to the times of the apostles. This one goes like right back to the times of the apostles, destroys the whole idea of higher criticism. Next one I want to tell you about is the Bodmer papyrus. And there's a graphic, by the way, as well in your, in your app for that. This contains all of the Gospel of John, all of the Gospel of Luke. It was written in the year 150 A.D. Sixty years after the original Gospel of John and the original Gospel of Luke were written, here is a copy that we still have and possess and can look at. I mentioned to you earlier that these things are contained in libraries that are still accessible today. This uh, is actually kept in, the Bodmer Papyrus is kept in the Library of World Literature in Switzerland. Another one to tell you about is what's called the Chester Beattie Papyrus. Let me flip over. Once again, there's a graphic for that in your Bible app. It contains all four Gospels plus the Book of Acts. Guess when it was written? 200 A.D., 100 years approximately from the very first copies of the New Testament being written. It is kept in what's the Chester Beattie Museum in Dublin, Ireland. Now, I only told you the story of three papyrus that were very early 
How many are early from the years 100 to 300? Do you remember? 5,656. I could have told you an additional 5,653 stories. I told you we have really good evidence of what our New Testament actually said when it was written. Now, what makes this so amazing, if you look at the history of the world and you know what was going on in between the years 100 and 300 AD, you know that the Romans were very committed to destroying the Christian faith. Romans are being put into the gladiatorial arena, being destroyed and beheaded. The Jews were also committed to undermining the Christians at that point. And any time they found a copy of a New Testament letter, what did they do to it? Guess. Did they keep it? They destroyed it. But didn't I tell you that God is not just the author of our New Testament, ultimately, but He's also the preserver of our New Testament? The Holy Spirit preserved 5,656 early copies that we can go back and look with great confidence to know what our New Testament says. Now, when you get to the 4th century, when you get to Constantine, things change radically. If you know your history, you know that Constantine legalizes the Christian faith. And the Christian faith goes from being persecuted to being endorsed. And at that point, all of a sudden, we find um, copies of the New Testament just proliferating all over the place. This is where we find the, the next 20,000 copies we still have. This is where it shows up. As soon as we get to 325 AD, they just go, they just multiply. Now, I told you the story of three famous little papyrus from before 325 AD. I'm going to tell you the story of two famous codex after 325 AD, once Christianity is legalized. To explain the difference to you, a papyrus, as I mentioned to you, is those reeds that are pushed together, that are pressed and dried to make paper. A codex is the very, and by the way, papyrus are usually rolled on scrolls. A codex is the beginning of what we would call books. Leaves that are, papers that are put together, usually done on vellum with animal skin, and then it sort of has a hinge and it turns that way. Let me tell you the story of two of these. The first one I'd like to tell you about is what's called Codex Sinaiticus. It is the entire New Testament and almost all of the Old Testament. It comes from the year 350 A.D. Right after Christianity gets legalized, it is created. And by the way, there's a picture of Codex Sinaiticus in your app once again. And there's an amazing story about how this particular book was discovered. The year was 1844. A 30-year-old man called Count von Tischendorf, he was a, a German guy, he was traveling the ancient world trying to find old copies of the Bible. He was trying to learn about these manuscripts. That was his deal at that time. As part of his travels, he ended up going to Mount Sinai and saying it was St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. He was talking to the monks about trying to find old copies of the Bible, and they're sort of listening to him, and not much is going on. And it became evening, and he saw the monks were using paper out of a trash can as fire starter to keep themselves warm. So he began looking at this and discovered the leaves of paper that they were using were 1,200-year-old Greek translations 
of the Hebrew Old Testament. He's like, guys, you don't burn these things. He pulled 43 pages out of the trash can. And you know what the monks told him at that point? Well, what's the big deal? We've already burned two, two trash cans fulls. He's like, these things are incredibly valuable. These are the things I'm looking for. And he ended up leaving with those 43 pages. He published them in Germany uh, to give people an idea of what the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament looked like very, very early in the time of the church. He returned a few years later. The year was 1853 to St. Catherine's Monastery, once again looking for more old books or old papyrus. But by now the monks were a little sketchy and didn't really trust him. They did not let him check their trash cans anymore. Came away with nothing. Showed up again a few years later. The year was 1859. Once again, ask them about any other manuscripts or old books they might have. He knows they have them. They're just not sharing them with him because they don't trust him. What else is he going to take, out of, take away from us? Well, just about the end of his visit, you know, the head of the monastery, he gave him a copy. Here's a, the book that I published in Leipzig, Germany, that has those 43 pages I took out of the trash can. I want to give you a copy of it. The head of the monastery was impressed. He's like, Wow. He said, well, I have a book too. And so he went back to his quarters and he pulled out a book that was wrapped in red, red felt, kind of vellum or red clothing, opened it up, and here it was, Codex Sinaiticus. It was the entire New Testament and almost all of the Old Testament written in the year 350 A.D. Now, they didn't give that to him, obviously. It took years of negotiating with the monastery. Finally, the Tsar of Russia, on Christmas Day, 1933, was able to obtain Codex Sinaiticus, and then he eventually gifted it to the library in London, where it resides today. Think about that. Your Bible, as you know it, 350 A.D., as soon as, the New Test- as, soon as Christianity became legalized. Pretty cool, isn't it? give you another one. Uh, this is called Codex Vaticanus. Incidentally, they named these things after their, their place of finding. If Codex Sinaiticus was found on Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's Monastery, where do you think Codex Vaticanus came from? One big guess. The Vatican! That's right. Sinaiticanus was manufactured in 350 A.D. Vaticanus was published in 330 A.D. Slightly older, but it is also sort of of the same vintage, the same idea. Once Constantine legalized Christianity, Sinaiticanus and Vaticanus were some of the very early hand-done copies of the Bible that were made at that time. By the way, just for the fun of it, the passage we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, are not in Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus because they they didn't see in the early church, that it actually belonged. They didn't believe it belonged, which is why they didn't include it. Something else to tell you. The New Testament is accurate because the age of its translations. You know, as a goal, our goal is to reach people, as a a church, our goal is to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's actually always been the goal of the church. It started at Pentecost, where God gave people the ability to speak other languages so the gospel to go to other people. And that's 
true in the church. We, we support missionaries to take the gospel to foreign lands. And one of the things missionaries often have to do, especially when they're in a, a place that doesn't have much information about the gospel, is uh, create a language and then translate the Bible into the language of the people they're trying to reach. That's sort of the Wycliffe Bible translator's philosophy. Not a new thing, though. That was happening in the early church. From the earliest of days, Christians were translating the New Testament into the languages of people they were trying to reach. Because we know the, the Word of God is living and active. It's what creates spiritual life. I'll give you just two examples of this. For instance, in Latin, we have 8,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in Latin. They date from the year 382 A.D. That's early. They were translated at that time. You can go to Syriac. We have 350 Syriac copies of the New Testament. The date from the year 200 A.D. And we know exactly what they thought the Bible said it, 200 A.D. in Syriac. Next point. The New Testament is accurate because of the age and the quantity of quotations by the early church fathers. We've already seen we have 25,000 ancient, ancient full or partial copies of our New Testament. 5,600 of those are between the years 100 to 300 A.D. We have 800 and some odd Latin copies and, and all these other Syriac copies, not to mention any of the other languages. But did you know that if we had nothing, not a single copy of the New Testament that existed before the year 325 A.D., we could can still completely reconstruct what the New Testament looked like at that time. Early church leaders, when they would write on subjects, they would obviously, in their writings, quote the New Testament and what the Bible said about those things. Sort of like what I typically do when I give sermon handouts, I put the verses right in the handouts. They would do that in their writings. Do you know how many New Testament quotations we have from early church leaders? between the year like 100 and 325 A.D.? Try 32,000. Let that sink in. You can reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the quotations of the early church leaders. So let's talk about the accuracy of our New Testament, the trustworthiness of our New Testament. Do we really know what the original New Testament said? <laughs> 25,000 fuller partial copies, 5,600 of those between the years 100 to 300 A.D., plus all those other early translations back to 200 A.D., plus 32,000 quotations from the early church fathers. We accurately, we know what the Bible actually says. The next point to make you is this, that the New Testament is accurate because there are more copies of it than anything else from ancient history. The gravity of the point I am making cannot be felt adequately until you compare the New Testament to other pieces of ancient literature. For instance, Homer's Iliad. After the New Testament, well, the most plentiful document we have from, the, from antiquity is the New Testament, without question. After that, the second most plentiful document is Homer's Iliad. Some of you remember reading that in college. 
we have 643 partial or full copies of Homer's Iliad from antiquity. But here is what I want to drive home to you. Homer's Iliad was written in the year 800 B.C. The oldest partial, just a piece copy we have of the Iliad is from 400 B.C., 400 years after it was written. The oldest complete copy of the Iliad we have is 1,300 years after the original. And it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that was not copied carefully or precisely. So we really don't have a great idea what Homer actually wrote. Compare that to the New Testament. Not even close. After the Iliad, the third most plentiful document of ancient history is called Herodotus' History. It was written in the year 480 B.C. The oldest complete copy we have of Herodotus' history comes from the year 900 A.D. It's 1,300 years after the original. It's once again a hand-done copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that was not carefully done. You know how many copies of Herodotus' histories we have? Eight. After that, the next most plentiful document we have of ancient history is Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars. It was written in 460 B.C. The oldest copy we have is 1,500 years after the original. And the total number of copies we have of Thucydides is eight. So, I want you to compare the New Testament that you hold in your hand to the, three, to the other three greatest and well-attested documents we have of ancient history. The Iliad, Herodotus, and Thucydides. Not even close. Those documents are filled with what's called by scholars conjectural emendation. It's a fancy word as we have no idea what goes here, so let's guess. That's not true with your Bible at all. We accurately know what it says and why it is trustworthy and true. Now, I hope you enjoyed that little uh, segue into textual criticism and the history of manuscript transmission and to why we know that our New Testament is extremely trustworthy and it does faithfully and accurately represent what was originally written. But you may wonder, what does this all have to do with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20? And I'm glad you asked. Mark 16, 9 through 20 is what's called a textual variant. The oldest manuscripts of the New Testament do not contain these verses. That is why the ESV has put a disclaimer in it. Some copyists going on down the road of history had thrown these, this extra explanation in, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes why I think he threw this in. He, threw this explanation in there, and it somehow began to get copied as if it was God's very word and the end of the book. But if we go back to the, old te- the oldest copies, those verses are not there. So they do not belong. Well, then you say, well, why don't we just get rid of them? Why are they even in your scriptures? 
to confuse us? And the answer to that is called the King James. The King James, as you know, the originally original King James was written in the 1600s, 1611. They had, they based their translation off of some Greek manuscripts, but their Greek manuscripts were not particularly old, and they did not have that many compared to the age that we're able to go back to and the number that we have today. And when the Greek manuscripts they had available to them that they translated the King James off of had these extra verses in them as if they were part of the text, which is why they translated them into the King James. Now, if we, the ESV and the modern Bibles just took those verses out, you know what everyone would say? I told you you can't trust those modern Bibles. Look, they took the last 11 verses of Mark away. Now, you won't say that because you understand the history of textual criticism and manuscript transmissions. I just told you all those things. But the average person would go, who's stealing my Bible? So that we don't get that reaction. Modern translators leave those verses in, but they put that little uh, explanation that they don't necessarily really belong. Now, you may add, ask, how did these verses even get in there? Why did somebody put them in there? Let me explain to you what I think went on here. As you remember, Mark ends his gospel in what's called a cliffhanger. It's a very intentional cliffhanger. The women go into the tomb. They see that Jesus isn't there. They see the angel says he has risen. They go and they leave and it says, and they don't say anything to anyone. And you end up going, well, what happened next? Well, What are we supposed to do with this? Mark ended that way for a reason. He wanted people to finish reading his gospel, be um, sort of stirred up on the inside, then go over to their Christian friends and say, well, tell me the rest of the story about Jesus. He rose, and then what happened? And see, Mark set everybody up for that. But he created a lot of tension by ending the way he did. So what happened, I believe, is a copyist didn't like that much tension, so he added a little explanation in his mind as to what happened next. Now, this is my opinion. I haven't read this anywhere. I believe that the copyist originally put those things in at the end. I do not believe he intended them to be taken as Scripture. I believe they were his explanation of what happened next, and that over time they got copied and added in as if they were Scripture for a few manuscript lines, even though they were not there originally. So that's how these verses ended there. Now, let's go back to the original question. How do we know verses 9 through 20 of the 16th chapter was not part of Mark? I'll give you a couple summary arguments. These verses, number one, do not appear in the earliest copies of the gospel. You go back to those ancient manuscripts, Really, almost nobody's got them. So that's good enough for me. Number two, Codex Sinaiticanus and Codex Vaticanus do not have these verses. These are some of the very earliest full copies of the Gospels, or of the, excuse me, of the Bible. They intentionally left them out because they felt like they didn't belong. Then you really want to get a good argument. Early church leaders, we know, knew that some copies of Mark's Gospel had these extra verses and they said they were not original in their writings. 
Eusebius, writing in the year 280, says that some copies of Mark's gospel have these extra verses, but they're not what Mark said. Jerome, writing in 390, says the exact same thing. If you see a manuscript that has these extra verses, trust me, they don't belong. You want to go really early? Justin Martyr said the exact same thing, as well as Tatian in the year 180 A.D. So, that's why I think these verses don't belong. When the early church leaders says they're not there, they don't belong. Let's look at this from a different angle. The internal evidence of text comparison. We looked at text criticism, let's look at text comparison. It also proves that Mark's final verses do not belong. By the way, I'm not saying that everything in these final verses is untrue. I'm just telling you that I don't think Mark wrote them, and neither do the early church fathers. Let me read to you these final verses, and then we'll uh, look at them a little bit. Beginning in verse 9. Now, when he rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. He went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name." They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying Science. A couple things to tell you about these verses. As you look at them, uh, first of all, there's a missing transition between verse 8 and this new section of verses in verse 9. Verse 8 leaves off talking about the women and the resurrection, and all of a sudden you're into verse 9, you're in a completely different topic. It's a very awkward transition. Number two, verse 8 ends in the feminine tense. Verse 9 begins in the masculine tense. You guys ever do foreign languages with feminine and masculine tenses and how they have to match up? By the way, Mark is a master rhetorician. It doesn't make any sense for all of a sudden him to make this major grammatical faux pas between verses 8 and 9 to go from the feminine to the masculine. Verse 9 also introduces us to Mary Magdalene. She was already in this gospel three times. She's not a new character. Why would somebody start introducing us to her now as the person to whom three demons had been cast out? But Mark's already introduced her. The Greek vocabulary is not consistent with the rest of Mark. In these last 11 verses, there are 18 new words that Mark has not used anywhere in this entire gospel. That's odd. 
Another thing to point out to you that was sort of fun. Uh, before I taught through this book, I had a chance to spend a week with Mark Strauss. Mark Strauss is the author of the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He is one of the premier scholars on the Gospel of Mark that is alive on the planet. And he taught the Gospel of Mark to myself and a handful of other students for our postdoctoral work. And we got to this section. He said, I've translated the entire Gospel of Mark from the Greek and spent tons of time in it. He says, I can tell you the Greek of these final verses is completely different from the rest of this Gospel. Mark did not write this. It does not match up. The closing verses introduce us to themes not mentioned in the Gospel, like picking up of snakes is nowhere in the Gospel, speaking in tongues, drinking of poison. Don't find that anyplace else. And F, most of the ending is a patchwork of quotations from other Gospels. Now, I said to you earlier that I don't believe that necessarily all the stuff that is on these final verses is untrue. It just comes from different parts of the New Testament. Like verse 9 comes from Luke chapter 8. Verse 10 comes from John chapter 20. Verse 12 comes from Luke 24. Verse 13 comes from Luke 24. Verse 14 comes from Luke 24. Verse 15 comes from Matthew 28. Are you getting the idea? He just like patchworked it together. Now, there is some things in there that I have no idea where he got them from. Like the drinking of poison and not getting sick. Nobody knows where that came from. But, by the way, since that's not Scripture, I wouldn't try it. Now, what does the real ending of the Gospel of Mark teach us? The real ending was in verse 8. The one that felt awkward and terse. Let me explain to you why it's not awkward and why it's the appropriate ending to this gospel. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark, by his very nature, is very terse and tight. Unlike Matthew and Luke, who begins with Jesus' birth, Mark doesn't get into any of that, does he? He just starts right away in the ministry. And as soon as Jesus is risen from the dead, he stops. Hard beginning, hard ending. And he told us the purpose of this gospel and what he was doing in the very first verse of the first chapter. Remember this? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm trying to prove to you who Jesus is, that he is the very Son of God because he, did, he does the things that only God can do. Look at his life, his ministry. The other thing that he is trying to teach us with this ending is this, that Jesus is amazing. Look at the ending in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Trembling is the Greek word tromos. It means to shake. Astonishment is the Greek word ecstasy. You ever heard of ecstasy? It's a, that's a literal translation of a Greek word, the Greek word ecstasy, completely amazed and astonished. And the word for fear here is the Greek word phobos. It doesn't necessarily mean petrified, afraid. It means so overwhelmed you cannot speak. Now, here is where it's interesting. Those three words, 
fear, astonishment, and trembling? One or more of those words describes every person's interaction with Jesus in this gospel. It's appropriate that the most amazing miracle of all, his raising from the dead, invoked not just one, not just two, but all three. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 1, verse 27, they were amazed that Jesus is teaching. Mark chapter 2, verse 12, they healed the paralytic and they were amazed. Mark chapter 4, verse 41, he calmed the storm and they were what? Afraid. Mark chapter 5, verse 15, he cast the demons out of a man and they were what? Afraid. Mark chapter 5, verse 33, he healed the woman from the sudden flow of blood and she was filled with fear and trembling. Mark chapter 5, verse 42, he raised Jairus' daughter and it says they were amazed. Mark chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus was transfigured and it says they were terrified. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus predicted his death on the cross and it says they were amazed. Is anybody seeing a pattern here? That when you come across Jesus and you meet Jesus and you see him for who he is and see him for what he does, you can't help but tremble, be completely amazed, and be speechless. My question is, the women trembled, were amazed, and were speechless after they met Jesus. How are you responding to him this morning? Are you overwhelmed by what he has done for you? The very one who created this world out of nothing took on a body to die in your place because he loves you. He wants to save you. Just place your faith in him. He wants to make you literally the most blessed beings in the universe. Oh, right now we're below the angels, but we'll be above the angels, judging the angels. That's what Jesus has done for you. How can we not respond with utter amazement, speechlessness, and trembling? Now, by the way, those women didn't stay quiet. After a while, they couldn't stop talking and telling everyone who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I pray that's the same for you as well that you would move from utter amazement and astonishment of what Jesus is and what he's done for us to telling our friends and neighbors what he's done for them too, that we would focus on reaching people with the good news of Jesus. No other news is better. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that we know your word is trustworthy, your word is true. Holy Spirit, thank you for preserving 25,000 ancient copies of this book so we know exactly what you said. That your word is faithful, trustworthy, and true. It contains the best message, the most important message we need to hear. Thank you for giving us a wonderful Savior, and I pray that we would be in awe over him and overjoyed to tell people about him. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. 
More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.